Hello, I'm Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to or watching Radio Maine. Today I have with me Sally Thomas. And Sally, you have so many different degrees, but I think one of them is also a doctorate, so I should also call you Dr. Sally Thomas. You can, but um, no one else does. So, <laughs> Well, I mean, there's just so many things to, to choose from here. Your doctorate, however, is what I guess I'll start with, since this seems to be sort of your the latest iteration of self that you um, have for us to explore. Tell me about that. How did you end up with a, a doctorate in this field? So I just graduated with a doctorate in ministry from Eden Seminary in St. Louis. And part of that is because I am married to a wonderful man, but we've moved several times. So I always say I tried to bloom where I was planted. And you're right, I have done a lot of things. And every time I did them, for instance, I was a nurse, I wanted to be a better nurse. So I went back and got a master's in nursing, became a nurse practitioner. But over time and with some of those moves, it became clear that my gifts were more around emotional support and being present with people who were suffering or unsure. And um, two things collided. I had small children and was teaching Sunday school, which was a hot mess, a lot of glitter, a lot of singing, and nobody was learning anything. And a friend of mine dragged me to a Montessori way to tell the stories of faith, be it Jewish or Christian, um, that trusted the children's inner teacher and didn't say, you must believe this, but said, what do you think? And so that started me on a path of considering um, more of the spiritual side of things. So I got a master's in theology and a spiritual direction degree and then wasn't done. I was paying attention to how families were changing in church in a digital age. Um, 20, 30 years ago, kids who come to church at all would run in, be with their friends, run around the edges, be on a playground or a secret room. But in the last 10 years, children started to come in and sit with their parents almost like puppies in a pile, just wanting to be near them. And I was wondering, what's changed? What's going on? And although I can't say for sure, I had a sense that there, you know, that serotonin in our, in our bellies, that, that inner teacher, I think children recognized that their parents were completely present when they were sitting in a pew. There weren't any phones. There weren't any distractions. And I think they just wanted to be up next to them. They just wanted present parents. And so, um, you know, that's the long story short. I am not an ordained person or anything, but I wanted to go and look at public theology, not what being present to one another was happening in churches, but what was happening in the real world. So that got me into a doctoral program and then some interesting research. Well, I, I know that children and dogs are not the same thing, but at this stage in my life, my dogs are my children because my children are all over the age of 21. And I, I'm thinking about the times when the dogs, we are two small dogs, will come and they'll sit next to my husband or I when we're on our computer or maybe we have our phone in our hands and they'll and they'll sit and they'll look at us and like, why are you doing this? Why are you so 
um, attuned to this box when I am in front of you right now. And sometimes they'll actually put their little paws up on the computer screen or on the keyboard. Like, this is, this is not real life. You need to, need to come back to us. So this idea that children somehow intuitively are tuned in to wanting to be present with their parents more fully yeah. resonates. Children work to get what they need, right? From the time they're young, they cry for what they need, and then they use these fabulous words or signs or however they're reared. But I am constantly amazed at how human beings um, seek peace or seek connection or seek safety when that's what they need. And sometimes we're just not paying attention. Do you think that some of what may be happening is that the current um, group of parents were all raised with computers, laptops, so they themselves were very digital, and now this next generation is very digital, whereas maybe the generation before, there was a little bit of a half and half, there was some time spent after hours, like running around underneath the streetlights and coming in for TV that shut off at 11 with the noise that happened in the background. Is that possible? I, I think that's the only way to think about it. So the real question for me and for us is not looking back and saying what was, but how do we embrace and love the technology we have and also say, are we serving each other? Are we really listening? Um, here in Maine, you know, we have one of the highest rates of teen suicide and one of the lowest um, rates of community mattering. Do you know that scale, Gordon Flett's work? There is um, an every two-year assessment of children in middle and high school um, that most public schools opt into. And one of the questions is, do I feel like I matter to my community? And that's a declining statistic. And so, you know, um, it doesn't take rocket science to think, how do we look at what's changed in society? We don't have as many structures in place to say, you matter outside of your family. Um, you know, whether it's church or the 4-H club or the bowling leagues that were intergenerational or whatever, I just think we have to say, how do we do it differently going forward? And um, I appreciate your question because that was really the genesis of my, my recent research project. So, yeah. Well, tell me about your research. Sure. Well, um, in the end, it's called the Wondering Together Project. And the idea was to invite 12 families from across the United States. I didn't know anything about their religious affiliation or anything, but um, it was the pandemic. So I said I invited them to spend four weeks with a daily check-in, five minutes or 10 minutes, um, using the same five questions almost every day. And these were questions I knew from this tradition called godly play, which was the Montessori approach to children's formation, but they translated really well to the secular world. So the idea was for a family to come together once a day, whatever worked for them. So one family had one-year-old twins, 
And they did the wondering together questions while they each took a spoon and were feeding a baby in a high chair, right? That was their time. Another family found the best time was while they brushed their teeth at night. So it wasn't necessarily, we all need to sit down and be serious. Um, One family here in Maine um, found driving to school together in the morning was the best time. But the invitation was to come sit, put your phones aside or on silent for just a few minutes, and everybody take a turn answering these questions. You always had the right to pass. And the questions were these. And I kind of described them, Lisa, like little breadcrumbs to draw you in deeper. So the first question is, I wonder what part of today you like the best. Not hard. And all ages can answer that. And then the second one was a little bit more complex. I wonder what part of today felt most important. What was the most important part of my day? And then everybody would answer, whether it was a couple or a family, um, drawing you in a little deeper. The third question is, I wonder when you felt most alive today. And for the littlest, the two and three-year-olds, we changed that to say, I wonder when you had the most energy today, because that makes more sense. The fourth question is, I wonder what part of today you could have left out and had all the day you needed. So you can see how we're sort of saying, not everything is terrific. Let's talk about the day. And then um, the last question is something educators are using now called affect naming. I wonder how you're feeling in this moment to name an emotion because we know neurobiologically when we name an emotion, it brings down Um, the cortisol or the stress hormones in our brain and has a real impact on our physical well-being as well as our emotional well-being. So those five questions um, sort of brought an arc to the day. And what happened over time was after about a week or two, and I did serial interviews, the um, people would say, you know, now when I go through my day, I'm looking at Something happens, I go, well, that's my favorite part, or that is the part I could have left out. I know what I'm going to bring to the conversation tonight. So um, so, so, uh, it was a month-long project, and I'd say that the most exciting thing at the end was the teens and tweens who participated, that particular age group, and not all of the families had a teen or a tween in. But the parents had said in the early interview, they don't want to do this, but I really want to try it. It's the pandemic, and we're kind of hungry for something. On the final interview, the whole family participated by Zoom, and I said something in the closing that was, I wonder if you'll keep doing the wondering together. And the children looked at their parents and said, I want to keep going, or does this mean we have to stop? So I think um, that that's interesting proof. So now my My hope, my goal, my work right now is to do research over a longer period of time. It's really interesting to me that even in this short conversation, you've moved us from a place of, um, well, well, I felt very sad thinking about children who don't feel as if they matter. And I know all health systems in Maine, probably across the country, are having issues now with teenagers who end up being housed in emergency rooms because we don't have outpatient psychiatric treatment. 
And it's a, that's a terrible, terrible place to have to be. As wonderful as our emergency room staff is, that is just not where children belong. But that made me feel very sad. But then as you were talking, it brought me to a place of hopefulness. And, it, and the research you're describing is very, the term is used, um, generative. So as opposed to being kind of social critics you're saying here is something that could be very powerful it's very strengths oriented how do we bring this into the common conversation was that a specific choice that you made as you were doing your research thanks for asking because you're identifying something that um, I felt a bit sheepish about at first which was to say um, first I wasn't studying for a PhD and um you know, for some of us, I, I had to get some understanding that what what the work was about was practical theology. How could I be? And that didn't mean I was talking about God in public, but it meant um, this was a work for the greater good in the bigger world. And once I claimed my sort of place as a practical theologian, I said, I thought, what can we do that's low bar entry point? that has the potential to grow and um, represents a low or almost no um, stressor to the family. It's really invitational. And because I use this series of questions as part of this other spiritual practice, I had seen how it had worked over decades. Like I have used those questions, thanks to godly play, sitting in circles of children for 20 years and seen how it, um, reliable ritual, knowing that I have a place to lay my burdens down or my day in front of someone else, really is impactful because it's almost like the table's set every day for someone to see me. The flip side of that, or the other good thing that you're mentioning about how this could be generative, is I think children are really hungry to know more about the lives of their parents. Um, I think their parents think they share plenty, but I think they want to know, what's it like at your office? What's all that you're doing on Zoom? I know it's important to you because it takes you away from me, but I don't know what about... So when a parent says this was something I could have left out today or this is how I'm feeling... It really um, sets um, the conversation to say we can talk about things um, even if they get hard because we have ways to talk about them now. Yeah. It also creates a sense of um, respect for the children, which is something that you identified when we first started talking this idea that they have an innate knowing of their own needs. And rather than us telling them, please sit over here at this little table and here's a picture of some scene from the Bible and I want you to color it in, which honestly that is one of the ways that I went to Sunday school back in the day. Um, we're suggesting that these feelings of spirituality are something they can already access and it doesn't need to be exter- externally oriented so much. Yeah, There's a beautiful image Um, from um, the Jewish faith tradition that talks about this divine spark, that when God created each one of us, God took a piece of God's self, 
a very a piece of that unbelievably and implanted it in us and my divine spark is not the same as yours but we both are alive with that and i think what would the world look like if we looked at each other and said you know sort of like yoga practitioners that of the divine in me recognizes that of the divine in you sounds good you know namaste but when you really listen to my stories and we hold them together um that's the real deal i think so i'm interested to know how as a nurse practitioner and i believe your focus was oncology and palliative care so cancer death dying um, moved into a place of theology spirituality um, personally yeah because I, I can only speak for myself. I don't know what your experience is, but I think when you go into the medical field, there's the sense that one needs to be objective, that you know you need to absent yourself from your own feelings while respecting the feelings of your patients. I've never found that to be particularly um, effective my own self, but I wonder how, how you worked through that for you. I would say it was a slow unveiling and i say that because i graduated from nursing school and came to work at children's hospital in boston and threw myself into an adolescent oncology inpatient job so i was 21 and my patients were you know, the patients we had there were about the same age so you know as we know now our you know prefrontal cortexes aren't developed and i was um, dancing as fast as i could i loved the work um, but from there, I uh, got married, and I wanted a day job. I, um, as we all do, worked a lot of night shifts. And I was a nurse at a family planning center in Boston, you know, where um, all sorts of things happen, tubal ligations and vasectomies, but also pregnancy terminations and contraceptive planning. And I worked with a completely different group of people, and the um, scales fell from my eyes about all that I didn't know about suffering, poverty, um, just how hard um, the world could be. Um, and then um, I went to work for a home healthcare company that did high-tech home care because AIDS patients were not wanted in the hospital. So all of a sudden, you know, I'd had a couple friends who were LGBTQ, but I didn't understand what families looked like until I saw a new kind of family that wasn't mother, father, but it was friends coming around. And I was um, invited into their homes to stay for five hours giving IV pentamidine, which should have been happening in the ICU. You know, this was the so I, I, I say, um, and after that experience caring for HIV patients and really understanding AIDS as a sociological issue, all I wanted to do was be a better nurse. Like, I felt like, I don't know what I want, but I wanted to be better. So you're right, um, but it didn't just start with oncology care. It sort of slowly built, um, and... We're so good at taking care of people that I think sometimes we recognize that we can't be everything they need. 
Um, and sometimes they just need something. I mean, maybe you've worked in an office. I know I have medical office where the emotional care was offered by um, the staff in the front office. They knew everybody. They knew their children. They knew their name. And we were lucky enough to get pieces of that from the people who sort of ran interference for us because we were so busy. So um, I'm just deeply appreciative that even though the path forward was not straight, <laughs> that I had all that experience because all of a sudden um, when our family needed to move, I could sort of claim for myself, I think, I think I'm ready to pay attention to people and kind of cultivate that piece of me that's not a prescriber anymore or you know um, all the things that have to happen with oncology but can really just listen so that's yeah I guess I'm feeling grateful right now because I always have ended up in settings where I've actually had the space to sit with patients and in fact sometimes that's all I could do because they didn't necessarily want to treat their blood pressure or stop smoking, but yeah. they were willing to sit and have a conversation with me and be seen that way. Nice. So when you're describing these offices, and I do know they exist, um, that, that would make me, I think, run away. Because I, I think the most, yes, we do need to take care of the physical needs of the body, and that is very, very important. But being in family medicine, for me, if I was ever in an office where I did not have the opportunity to know this person as a part of a family, whatever that looked like, I would know that that was not the right setting for me. And so, and all that being said, there's still all the pressures that we all experience with, right. you know, people who want us to do certain things. So we, We'll get paid a certain way and you know the number of patients we need to see sure. so we can keep the lights on and but i would think that that would be very difficult to be in a setting where you only knew things about patients because you knew things from other people i i guess i will say that wasn't the only way um and i um the joke in our office was there were two nurse practitioners and three oncologists um, you know, excellent researchers and still wonderful people working in the field. But they would joke and say that their nurse practitioners were their hired personalities who got to, to do that piece of it. So uh, it's not that I didn't get to do it. It's just that I recognize that sometimes um, I wanted to spend more time with the spiritual piece or not spiritual, existential you know, these, these existential issues. I kind of trust the universe or God or whatever to do that work, and we're just sort of helping people be ready for whatever's happening in that regard. Well, I appreciate your clarifying that. Because <laughs> you know. I certainly don't want anybody to think anything differently than what your actual experience was. Yeah. So, But it also still kind of makes me... Yeah. You know, as a physician, I, I wouldn't ever want to be in a place where my job was to be the technician and other people had the opportunity to know a person more fully. Yeah. Because at, at the end of the day, we're, we're not just treating the body. Nope. We're not just treating the physical stack of cells that's wandering about the planet. But you fully immersed yourself in 
this other aspect of self that's so interesting to me that you've kind of been like, all right, I took care of that part of the self and we're going to go over here now. Yeah. I think part of it too is, you know, we grow in our relationships with people. We grow as parents. Aging, myself, certainly um, breaks down some barriers. And so all of a sudden, the, um, there's, there's a significant amount of clarification over time, and I love that. You know, sometimes people laugh about turning, I'll be 59 next week, laugh about getting older, and I am sort of like, bring it on, because for right now, uh, this is perfect. Uh, I, 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 there's so much I don't know, and I'm eager to explore what sort of comes before me instead of have it all figured out. I feel the same way. So, nice. I mean, I already knew we were kindred spirits, but I, but I also know, you know, this this idea that all of the best things happen to us when we're younger, and then the quote unquote golden years are just spent trying to kind of prop up the various parts of ourselves that fall down. I just don't really buy into that. So, I agree. So, tell me about your connection to art. I had a terrific grandmother, my mother's mother called her Dee Dee, and she was creative. She was a painter. She had been a model. She loved beautiful things. Um, she surrounded herself with things um, that she'd gotten from travels or um, that she painted herself. But the most interesting thing that I wish I'd appreciated more was she was a student of Ikebana, which is a Japanese art of flower arranging, which focuses on the beautiful spaces in between um, whatever the materials are. But as a little girl, I would walk into her house, and she lived very close to us, but I'd walk in, and she'd have what appeared to me to be a stick and a bud, and I sort of thought, everybody else's grandma has, like, bunches of flowers, or why would... Um, Fast forward to when my kids were in elementary school and I got to study Ikebana. And I wish she had still been alive because I would have loved that. So um, so surrounded by beauty, but not beauty for beauty's sake, but beauty because you felt connected to it or could tell a story about it. She was that way with poetry. And my mom has a lot of that, too. And then you meet the coolest people. Like I married a man, um, still married to him, love him, but one of his best friends um, from spending summers here in Maine is now an uh, artist in um, San Diego. And she was painting when we were in college. And so we started to buy art. And then, and then we started to go to art festivals. And then we started to appreciate that sometimes the dishes we used could be art. And um, so people walk into our home and think, oh, you guys know so much about art. And the truth is, is that we buy things because we like the artist's story or it seems to fit. And um, every time I look at it or we look at something, there's delight or a story or a connection. So... Um, so I recently bought a piece by Ann Trainer, and um, I was actually 
creating some space in myself to say, I've just finished this doctorate, the research went well, I've saved some pin money, and um, I'll know it when I see it. And in no hurry, I didn't have a space to fill, or what, when you love art, you tend to always find space when you need it, but um, you don't know, there's no open space until you do. And um, I had the opportunity as I was getting a new pair of glasses next door to walk in and thought I was going to see one artist and then kept coming back to this piece and knew it was speaking to me. And then my practice is always to walk away and then to come back a day or two later and make sure, or maybe a week later or whatever. So... um, that's the latest um, art story. But one, if I may, just interesting thing happened a couple of years ago. When Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, I had seen two days before um, an artist had what they called a clothesline series. So it was paintings of things on clotheslines, but they were what was hanging off was amorphous. And there was one particular painting that was um, nine different black things, and it was a representation of our Supreme Court. And I saw it, and I I thought, wow, that's a really cool thing. And then when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, I found myself driving an hour to that gallery and hoping that it was still there. For some reason, I hadn't forgotten it. So, So art can take on meaning for a lot of reasons, but there's a story with that piece. I'm not sure I would have gone back for it for any other reason, but... It called me back, or she called me back. So, and there are some times that things impact us so deeply that we don't really know exactly how to respond. And sometimes, I mean, when I think about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and of course she was older, but it was still such a loss. It was a loss, and not even really knowing how to grieve this very public person. So the fact that you and your self knew, okay. I need to go back and I need to connect with this space that I once was in with this art. I mean, that's very powerful. And it still hangs and still speaks to me. There's been, you know, there's been a lot coming out of the Supreme Court. And for some of us, it's really challenging. And um, art doesn't make it better, but it certainly smooths the edges when. Um, when we need those edges smooth. I find art really grounding. Um, sometimes it moves around. Sometimes I need to see it in a different place. I um, change, change where it's living. But, um, but I find that when one surrounds themselves with beautiful things that make you feel at home, then that's the anchoring place from which you can go do the bigger work. So um, it's funny because if we've got two grown children and one you know, has decorated their home with art, uh, different than I would have chosen, but boy, does it feel like them. She's now married. And our other daughter liked plain walls. And I have to say, I kept saying, how about if I buy you something? Would you like a piece of art? She's like, I'm good, I'm good. So <laughs> I think she'll change, but I don't know. It's really funny, though. She's Perhaps she's inherited the love of space. Maybe. Maybe. So she's, she's channeling her great-grandmother. Exactly. Her great-grandmother, Dee Dee. Yes. Well, I I know that with Anne's pieces, for me, I've never been able to decide which one I like the best. 
that's how much I love her work. And even having spent time talking with her for the show and then going back and talking to her again, even even then the, 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 the relationship just kind of keeps evolving and it just makes me love her pieces even more. So I think you're right. I think there's so many different things about art that can speak to us. You know, there's the visual, there's the personal, there's the story around the art itself. And sometimes we don't even know consciously what, it is that's drawing us to any given piece at any given time. You know, what's interesting is when I was in the gallery with this piece and had a chance to talk to the staff in there who were so great, they started to share a little bit about Anne's process. And I said, oh my gosh, that sounds a little bit like what my work is, even though it's not art. And this kind of dynamic overlapping, kind of a Venn diagram of of creativity, one from doing research in art, ensued, and it was um, affirming that this was this was the right artist in the right piece at the right time, and it all sits well with your soul. It's just right, and um, there's not a whole lot of that in the world. So let's find as much as we can, and store that feeling up like nuts for the winter. You know. I think that's a that's a good way to put it. Um, it's a it's an interesting thing to continually interface with this sort of ever changing world and and know that there there truly isn't any solidity. But if you can at least have that nut that that you feel like is solid, so there's that possibility that there's something that you can return to. I think that is comforting somehow. There's an ancient Christian mystic from a thousand years ago. Um, Ignatius of Loyola, and he talked about consolation and desolation and described them thusly. Consolation is when you feel close to what's good, what's universally right. Perhaps that's God. And his invitation was, store up consolation. Say to yourself, this is how it feels when all is right, when you know there's health or happiness or good meal or whatever. So that when there's desolation, the time of being separate from what feels good and right, you can almost open up the sunshine box or, you know, recall that because there's always ebbs and flows. So his invitation was nothing lasts forever, but store up the feelings because they serve each other when you need um, kind of sustenance, when you need to know things will be better in time. I think it's a beautiful image when you think of art, too. You know, you do sort of go to it and go, wherever you are. And then um, kind of internalize that and draw on it later, that beauty or the majesty or the brilliance or how could that even come to being. I just, so music's like that, too. So how do we work to and cause people to have the space to feel like they matter. Because as you're telling me at the beginning of this conversation that the children in Maine fall low on this mattering scale. And I think of there's so much that is around us that should provide the consolation. You know, there's so much that is beautiful and wonderful about the state we live in. Maybe not in March, but definitely right now. Um, 
and there's so many really wonderful people that live here. How do we help children and really any of us get to that place where we feel as if we have those nuts that we can return to in difficult times? It's really something I think about a lot. And there's there's a whole organization, the Maine Resilience Building Network, that's pulling in practitioners from all across all sorts of social service and educational agencies that's trying to answer this question. And I, um, I'm, a, I'm every everything they offer, I soak up. What comes up for me when you ask that question, and why I keep coming back to it is, um, I this is going to sound crazy, but I think a lot about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and I think you know, if you don't have your own physical needs and sense of safety met even though this is an old concept, you really can't do the higher-ordered thinking or the opening of the heart to another person. So this is really about our social fabric. How do we help one another feel safe and have our physical needs met, You know, feel um, stable, however that looks? Because once we do that, then it's not on the, the, the um, minority that... Um, the minority of people who who can do that higher ordered thinking, um, I think it's on. Then we can all share in um, the the vocation, the avocation to care for each other by really saying, "Remind me of your name," or "I'm so glad to see you again." I noticed I missed you, and things that we talked about earlier, like like churches and clubs and meeting places that we don't do so much anymore that used to serve that purpose um we now leave to um you know sometimes bus drivers say we i missed you or people in um stores or whatever but i think isn't the invitation on us all to say i see you remind me of your name i'm sorry i forgot names are important and i know you're important i'm sally you know, or however you find your way into those conversations. Because you never know if even that small connection, I mean, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but I think we have to say, um, I know we're feeling closed off, we're tired, we've been in this pandemic, and, and we're stressed too. But to say, for the greater good, let's try a little harder. And um, it's not that simple. But that was sort of the impetus of this research I did, was just to say, what things with a really low bar, where can the invitations be? And then people far wiser than I can build on those um, to, so we can be, be experiencing those changes and successes together as a society. I, I like the idea that what you're discussing and describing is, is essentially it's tools. So when you talk about practical theology, I love those two words together because I think sometimes it can be feel overwhelming to ponder the large theoreticals and the abstracts and what you're saying, here's a low bar, here's a few words, here are a few things that you can do because I I think you're right. It is simultaneously very difficult and very easy, you know, to connect with somebody, um, even in a small way, can really open things up unexpectedly at times. 
I think we're not serving one another if we don't try those small things. If we say, oh, we've got to do the big things. I think, um, I think it's the small things that are going to reverberate. Because you probably have, in your experience, these small moments where someone changed something significantly for you by giving you a second chance to answer a question when you were an intern. Or do you know what I mean? To say, let's think about that together. Or I've missed you. Um, that's not hard to do. And you never know, back to your earlier, how generative that might be. I've been trying to make it hard for so long to do the big things. And um, the older I get, the more I'm convinced that let's start with what we can do and not overthink this and at least try. That's a heavy burden that you took upon yourself. I think... I I don't I don't see it that way. I just see that um, I've had so many cool opportunities, and I'm really lucky to be grounded in a a lovely, loving marriage over time. And from that, um, who am I not to say? Have we met before? It's so nice to see you because I have um, I have roots. Um, from which I can extend my own energy. Well, to be clear, I don't mean the talking, you know, offering these small things. I don't think that uh, is the heavy burden. But the sense that I have that maybe earlier on, that was the burden, the the need to change everything. I think you're right. And and also, honestly, it's it's very relatable. I mean, I think many of us go into medicine because we, we want to somehow make a difference. And then we get in there, and it's such a complex set of systems that if you were to just focus on the long-term sustainable change, it might get very discouraging. So this this heavy burden is is a yoke myself I have felt. So I, it's not in any way meant to be a criticism. And if, I, and if it doesn't feel like it resonates with you, please do not own it because I don't want to assign this to you. You didn't, and I didn't hear it as a criticism. I I think it. I think I understand that. Um, how, how so many of us experience this, especially because we, we self-select into careers as young, young people, you know. So we, um, it's just the nature of the business, I think, that you go in uh, early. And um, it's taking care of people is the greatest gift, and it's tough to sleep some nights. And that's just the way it is. In the hospital that I work in, in the stairwells, they've painted these quotes, which are wonderful. And the one that I see, and, and it's probably the one I think of the most, is the Maya Angelou quote about um, people forgetting um, what you did, people forgetting what you said, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. And these small gestures that you're describing, I think sometimes in that moment can cause people's feelings to shift, but certainly are iterative over time. That if you continually are saying, good morning, Sally, it's so nice to see you, that that relationship building um, does lead to that longer term gain and benefit for someone. Since I've left nursing, I've functioned as a hospital chaplain, and now I'm a chaplain at a retirement community. And one of the jokes about chaplains is that um, 
we linger with intention. We're one of the few hospital staff who can linger with intention. And I think that is, um, it's such a joyful job just to be ready to meet the moment and be less purposeful and more, um, you know, it, it, it makes you part of a team because you can do something a little bit different. But I'm really, uh, my, my cup is really filled in my time in the retirement community because um, there's so much wisdom and they do not care about singing old hymns or praying old prayers, but talking about the key experiences of their life and what they learned and what they want others to know um, goes back to Maya Angelou. They remember how people made them feel, and those are the first memories that seem to come up the pe- when they were loved, when they were seen. So. Which brings us full circle to the conversation about children. Yeah. And they may not even be capable of putting words to an emotion at the time that they're feeling the emotion. So even just allowing them the space to feel that emotion and perhaps helping them with the words to express that, I think it's, it's a, it seems like it's helpful across the life cycle. What would it be like if we all had the right words or at least the space to stop and name how we were feeling? And knowing that, we're sort of equipped for the next moment. I know I could use more of that, so... I think we all could. <laughs> Sally, I really appreciate your taking the time to talk with me today. I, I could probably keep you here for half a day, a day, a week, keep talking, but I know we do have to give you back some time in your own life, so I really appreciate your taking this time with me today. Thanks for the invitation. I've enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. I've been speaking with Sally Thomas, who is uh, many, many things, but um, I will call her the practical theologian who has also a love of art, if if we need to label her, which I'm not sure that we do. Um, you can learn more about the artist we've discussed today, Anne, Anne Trainer demang This is another individual that I've interviewed previously, and many of our other wonderful artists. And maybe if you go to an art opening, you'll actually run across Sally Thomas as well. I'm Dr. Lisa Belial. You've been listening to or watching Radio Maine. Thank you, Sally. Thank you.